0: Welcome to Everyday Driver, where cars are more than just transportation. They're
1: freedom, a common ground, a way to grow, and can even make life better. We're here to help everyone find a car they love and discover all the ways they connect us. I'm Paul.
0: I'm Todd. And this is The Car Debate. the things we thought to do with our cheap sports cars teaching someone to drive manual I have to say once we landed on that idea it was one of my favorite ideas I'm glad you liked it it was really enjoyable actually it was very cool I hope you've seen that piece it's on our original YouTube channel the everyday driver channel on YouTube not the test drive channel the test drive channel has new stuff every Thursday the original channel the everyday driver channel has stuff about every other Thursday right now we hope you've seen that piece
1: yep indeed well this is the manual transmission instructing episode Big thanks to Sophie and Travis. Mm-hmm. They were our test subjects, and I really do feel like we were imparting knowledge and helping proliferate the manual transmission disease. I hope to so. People. I hope so. I think they really liked it. And huge thanks to our sponsors, Auto Tempest and Power Stop Brakes for sponsoring the entire Cheap Sports Car mm-hmm. Challenge. Mm-hmm. We're thrilled to have them on board as a sponsor, and we can't wait to do more stuff with our cheap sports cars, like actual number skid pad testing. There'll and be a bit of performance testing, testing coming. And, yeah, that's coming for you know, sure. Some track time and see how slow they actually are we'll see terrify ourselves it's gonna be fun yep as you've heard we have scheduled a texas meetup in austin scheduled for a couple of days over memorial day weekend that is friday may 28th and saturday may 29 2021 go to the adventures tab at everydaydriver.com and you can see more information about the meetup and there is a sign up there's a link to the eventbrite page on there so go ahead and, and uh, sign up we would love to see you in texas and uh, we're just glad we can be able to do these kinds of things again also podcast episode 600 is coming featuring a YouTube live stream that is Thursday May 6th 2021. We are posting it also as the regular podcast on Friday May 7th. So this is episode 598 so 2 from now is episode 600. We can't believe it's been another year, another 100 episodes of the podcast. Thanks to you guys for writing all your car conclusions, your topic Tuesdays, your stories, your your car debates and it's really due to you guys. But save up all your questions Car questions, non-car questions, send them on the live stream. Send us in advance if you'd like as well. But watch social media for that as to when the exact time will be. But again, that will be May 6th, 2021.
0: When your car needs new brakes, and it will, it's a great time to upgrade for better stopping power. We're excited to partner with
1: PowerStop Brakes for an easy way to get more performance for something you already need. PowerStop is on a mission to deliver better brakes on every vehicle in every situation, from daily commuting to towing to track days. These are bolt-on, direct-fit parts for better braking with no modifications required. Every PowerStop Complete Brake Kit comes with all the parts you need to upgrade your
0: brakes. That includes the pads, rotors, and even those little clips and fasteners. Plus, all their pads are made from a carbon fiber ceramic compound, which they've tested extensively to deliver low dust
1: and noise-free performance. So the next time you need new brakes or simply want to upgrade, visit PowerStop.com and enter your vehicle's information into their easy-to-use Car Finder. Todd and I even found great kits for our SUVs and cheap sports cars. Give your everyday driver the easy and affordable performance upgrade it deserves at PowerStop.com. Well, guys, we've got a couple of really fun debates here from Andrew W. He's getting rid of the soul-crushing minivan, wanting some suggestions here. We've also got <laughs> Sean H. out on the East Coast who is replacing a lukewarm hatch and wants to know, uh, what what should he do? But let's jump in, first of all, to Andrew's email here. He says, a couple of years ago, he moved from a Lexus RX350 that was originally his wife's car to a 2020 Ford Explorer ST. Okay, all right. My sister's made noises about that, actually, Andrew? He's made some small suspension mods, and he's enjoying it. It's got three rows, plenty of space, and it's kind of fast when he steps on the right side pedal. That's what you hope for. Indeed, like that, you hope for it. I I believe that's turbocharging, is what that is. Yeah, that's a little bit of that. Yeah. When he inherited the RX-350 due to the birth of their second child in 2011, his wife felt it was time for a minivan. That's how it
0: happens. We have more than one child. We need enough stuff to carry seven people. I understand those I, of you that are out there that need yeah, six or seven seats. Yeah. I get it. But this is, this is, um, this is a common suburban reality. I, hey, I fell prey to it. We got we, we were about to have our first child. We got a GMC Acadia with seven seats. And, when we, and, and then literally about six months in to his life, we went, why do we have this big a car? <laughs> but anyway, onward.
1: <laughs> well, they kept shopping and comparing. They settled on a 2012 Chrysler town and country. It served them well easy to get in and out of. Mm -hmm. It's got the automatic sliding electric doors, and she never had to worry about a six-year-old flinging a rear door open (laughs) into someone else's much nicer car.
0: Yeah. I I I have that fear when I take the Lotus to do the school run, because if you see me, that's fine. But what happens, though, is you have the kids on either side getting into the cars. you
1: got to worry about those doors for sure. Yeah. Well, it had decent tech for the era, he says, but the time has come to move on to the next car, and he's talked his wife into getting out of the minivan and into something else that isn't a minivan. Okay. They've got a, light, a nice large budget, $60,000, and they live in Georgia in the Sunbelt. Okay. So four-wheel drive isn't a must. Yeah, definitely not. But she feels like she needs a third row for hauling kids around. He feels weird about owning two cars that do roughly the same things, mm-hmm. like three, three-row SUVs, like you were talking about. Yeah, for sure. And he says, you know, what should we think about? She likes technology, good stereo sound, and comfort. Okay. She doesn't care if it's fast or if it handles particularly well. They've
0: got three they're already considering. They said the Acura MDX, the Toyota 4Runner with the third row, the Infiniti QX60. And then, uh, clearly Drew has listened to this podcast because he (laughs) makes an end run on us. Because I'm at this point in the email and I'm thinking I have the answer. And he says, by the way, my wife does not want a Kia Telluride or a Hyundai Palisade because she feels like everyone she sees is already driving one. So those would have been
1: fantastic options here and they are out. I Okay, you, you have been listening, Andrew, and I, I like what you're saying here. I I definitely hear you. I like your choices. That MDX is something we even suggest used and say, get into the MDX. We actually have the new 2022 MDX review coming out mm-hmm. very soon. We were able to get into that. Yeah, it's a new test drive coming up very soon. It's actually a different car-truck kind of feel because it's on a different chassis. It's on now a light truck chassis, mm-hmm. whereas before it was not. So... I I think you and I disagreed quite a bit on that. Yeah, I hmm. I think it's going
0: to be quite uh, quite ranty because I don't think we agreed very well.
1: Yeah, it's it's a different uh, kind of driving experience there. And then the forerunners, I. I hear you on the Forerunner. I feel like it's really going to need to be driven by somebody who's an off-road enthusiast I because think so too. they've gone that direction so yeah. heavily. It's not just well, SUV.
0: They've stayed that direction. Well, is the key thing. Yeah. That is an old yeah. chassis, and your wife's wanting tech and comfort, and that is not to be found in the Forerunner. That is a old. It's a, it's a very capable chassis, but until they update that, that one's out.
1: Yeah, and then Infinity QX60. I feel like you're buying an ancient platform. Mm. And even though it might be nice and new now, for as long as you keep cars, which I think is about a decade, seems to be a little while, yeah. I think it's gonna get old really quick. Just it's gonna look old, it's gonna feel old, it's gonna be with everything that's coming from car manufacturers in terms of niche SUVs and trying to reinvent the category and stand out in the mm. category, yeah. I think it's gonna just get old on you real quick. So I do have some choices for you, and I'm <laughs> You're right. Tellurides are popular. They're popular for a reason. They're good. That's why. Yeah. They're not just hey the, the new thing, Mm -hmm. they are genuinely good, but something else that is good from Kia is the Sorrento Mm -hmm. brand new Sorrento. I personally would get it in the larger engine displacement, the higher horsepower truck. I would get it. It's a little bit beefier looking with that X line package. And I, I like that look better. And I found it to be pretty great to drive for it's it's good. It's for the size and shape and architecture 90% the
0: size of the Telluride. Mm-hmm. It is the global yep. car for them because they they only sell the Telluride in North America. So that is an option. Keep going. I also want you to take a look at Toyota as well, but
1: not the Forerunner, the Highlander.
0: Agreed. The Highlander is the one to look at here.
1: We drove the uh, I believe it was the uh, hybrid. Mhm. That was
0: so good. We drove the non-hybrid, liked it, drove the hybrid, liked it even more. Mm-hmm. Both those test drives are on the test drive channel, actually.
1: Yeah. I was just looking at that and uh, I thought the the Highlander could really be great. And up to this point, I've never really thought much about the Highlander. I've never considered. It's just a, we've got something on the market also ran kind of SUV.
0: They made it fully but, into the full size and made it very competitive in that area for sure.
1: Yeah. I, I really feel like that Highlander needs to be looked at seriously because The spec we had it in, the tech was there, Mm -hmm. the space. Every time we turned around, we're just going, wow, this is quite good.
0: It's one of our favorites alongside the the Telluride and Palisade. And in all of these specs, we're talking about something right around $50,000. So well within your budget. But you get everything for that. Good seven seats, all the tech you want, latest Mm -hmm. and greatest. The hybrid one, as the name suggests, gets good
1: gas mileage too. Since you've got a $60,000 budget, I understand about not wanting to look like the neighbors. It's a thing. Yeah, I totally get that. Absolutely. I drive a yellow Lotus Elise in a world of trucks. Well, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely understand that. So as far as the non-standout choices, mm-hmm. with $60,000, you could get a pretty nicely, barely used Mercedes wagon. Yeah, that's
0: true. You could go wagon. That's interesting. All right. I see where you went. Yeah.
1: Everybody would look at you and look at your wife going, huh, well, that's different. That's I wonder if you start a trend in your neighborhood, Andrew, like. Suddenly, everybody's getting E-Class wagons, but (laughs) you could find something. I'm not talking about the you know E63 AMG. I'm not talking AMG anything. Yeah, just the nice the 450s. The the nice E-Class wagon could be something because it's lower the ground. It's got that sedan like like driving experience. I think it could do everything you're looking for without being an SUV. Mm. Genuinely, that's good. I do like those. I have two other SUVs I want to talk
0: about, and then I have some uh, wild cards that are not SUVs. Because I'm wondering about this, Andrew. Is is it possible that the Explorer becomes your wife's car? Is that mm. even in the cards? Granted. Go back to the less aggressive suspension. You've you've changed the suspension. What's the less aggressive setup? Would that work for her? Would she even accept that? Could you get something different? I think it's interesting that this only went that way. It only went Mm to replace her minivan, and the possibility of her taking your Explorer was never discussed. Does she like it? Does she not like it? That wasn't really covered. So I'm a bit confused on there. So I'll get to wild cards in a minute. But if you're looking at SUVs, you should also look at the Volvo XC90. It's a good those one. start at right about fifty grand. So if you've got sixty, you're going to get a good one out of that. I mean, they're going to add prices quick. But sixty grand for a Volvo XC90 is very good. That's a good one. Another one that starts at fifty and goes up is the Mercedes GLE. That is oh, sure. their competitor to this same size area. So I think you should look at the GLE because you can get a. I was looking early. You can get a 450, which is not the big monster, snorty, fire breath AMG at all. But those start at fifty. And you get that up to sixty. You'd probably like that GLE quite a bit, and I think you would both enjoy driving it. But let's leave SUVs. I. What agree. if your wife? I agree. Has that Explorer, and that's your seven seater. And what if you got an Alpha Julia mm-hmm. or a Kia Stinger? Yeah. yeah. Those are both very usable, genuinely fun to drive. Four doors, four good seats. I think you could like either of those
1: a lot. I'm still, mm, I'm still on Volvo. Actually, that XC or the V90. Sorry, the V90 Cross Country. The V90 is awesome. Just the V90 itself mm-hmm. would be great, but if you want a little bit of ride height, and sure, you like that sure, look, sure. the cross-country was impressive, too. Great interiors. Very, yeah. Very worth the money in Volvo. I'm just wondering about that. So, all right. Well, Andrew, let us know. Sean H. is on the East Coast. He discovered the show a few years ago. He says when his job in the Navy had him living several hours away from his family for three years. Wow,
0: wow, wow. Okay.
1: He said it may sound odd, but we got him through some tough and lonely times. And, Sean, I'm really glad to hear that and glad you wrote to us. Really yeah, appreciate it. cool. Very cool. He says, "On to the car debate. He's looking to replace his car that has had problems with mystery water leaks. It is a 2019 Hyundai Elantra GT N Line with a six-speed manual. Mm. It was his first manual. He drove 60 miles to pick it up, and had the salesman give him a crash course on using a clutch. Wow. Hopefully, that's not the YouTube video where we teach Sophie and Travis. It's well, it's it, kind he had of a at crash least course. That though. much of a difficulty, yeah. He drove it 60 miles home, which was was ill advised. He says, but they got there." But it's time for it to go because of the problems it's had. Can't do another East Coast rainy summer with it. And he's going to be taking about a $5,000 hit when he offloads it, but that's factored into his budget already. So he says, Paul, go ahead and do your
0: thing. Wow. And I get the impression Mystery Water Leaks, when I first read that, I thought, what? What? Why is it leaking fluid? And then I realized, no, no, this is like, can't be out in the rain. It's leaking into the mm-hmm. cabin, and nobody can so- can find a solve. That's weird.
1: Yeah, that's a little unheard of, especially for a modern Hyundai and Kia, because I, you've heard us talk about it. I feel like their build quality is way up there, mm-hmm. and this kind of thing is... A mystery. It's unheard of. That was one of those last cars built on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> That's what yeah. that was. I'm going home. Well, I'm done. I would. I would like to think the cars built on any particular day. It's no longer a you problem. You would think.
0: You would think. But still, yeah.
1: Well, there's the current car list is that GTN line, the 2016 Forester, which is his wife's car. He's got a 1994 Ford F150 with 250,000 miles on it. Wow. It's a 94 so it runs sort of but it's unremarkable. <laughs> this is the Home Depot or local landfill run. Quarter million miles on it, yeah. Wow. Got it. He's also got a Miata. It's an automatic, 2008. Okay. And he has to share it with his wife who doesn't want to learn manual but enjoys having a convertible and driving some back roads. Oh, so it's hey. cool. All right, I get it. It's For great. Sure. Yeah. He's got a a number of past cars here, Impreza Wagon, Focus Hatch, and a Flex EcoBoost. Do not tell Todd's wife about the Flex.
0: She has a a near allergic reaction to those. There's like instant rant when she sees one drive by. It's it's very weird. It's like a knee-jerk reaction. But he loved his, yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he says he misses this car every day, but it had to go because it started to have sparkly oil changes.
0: Sparkly oil changes—that that, uh, m- that chunks of metal? has metal in it, ladies and gentlemen. Eesh. You have a problem, sir. Yeah,
1: you know, he says it stopped being practical as a commuter once he wasn't living in it. But mm, wow, and on to the Elantra GT. He's looking for a car that can do it all—that straddles the line of fun car and daily commuter. Okay, it will be it will be used in autocross for sure. He would like to eventually branch out into track driving as well. Okay. And he's not, here's the thing, because you can probably hear us suggesting Veloster ends already. Mm, Yeah. He's not a hundred percent against Hyundai and Kia at this point, but after the experience that he's had the past year, Mm. trying to get the car to stop leaking water, he would have to be head over heels to really consider them again. I I would love to think that you're not going to get that same problem again, Sean.
0: I think that's very unlikely, but we can't guarantee that, obviously, yeah.
1: It's yeah hard to say, but yeah, you you can hear me saying Veloster N already, but we'll see. We'll we'll keep trying for other things here. He likes hatchbacks. He's willing to try anything. His current list that he's looking at includes a Mazda Speed 3, Fiesta ST, WRX Hatch, and Cooper S. Mm-hmm.
0: The everyday driver greatest hits. In many ways, yes. He says, Can't you tell I listen? He says, yeah. What is he missing? The other key thing here is budget. He's looking at fifteen to twenty thousand dollars. So if we start going above that, we start to have a problem. He said, Please don't hurt me too much on this. So <laughs> he wants to should he also branch out from hatches is the other question as well. But what he does not want to compromise on, he wants a manual transmission and heated seats. So those are the requirements. I, I applaud you first off, Sean, for just sticking with a manual. I think that's great. So let's find you something.
1: He's not in a, too much of a rush. He's not super experienced in wrenching, he says, but he's done a good amount of work keeping that F-150 on life support over the past few years. <laughs> okay. And he's got the other cars if he bites off too much, and a quick weekend project becomes a several-week problem.
0: Let's hope not. Yeah, agreed. That's why I avoid project cars, <laughs> <laughs> because it's going to take me all day for yeah, the next and, four weeks. and the money that you pour into Unfortunately, it. Unfortunately, yes. Uh,
1: the problem is the love and the passion. Absolutely. Everybody and if you're has person their hold. who loves to wrench. Yes. And you have
0: that time I I do get it. I do get it. I just avoid it.
1: Everybody has their hold on which to pour money. Hmm. Your car came to mind actually. Your cheap sports car. Oh, really? And double the price, Sean, and get yourself a fourteen, fifteen 15,000 really nice Z4. Yeah. See, my car, my SLK doesn't have heated seats. I know you true. can get it with heated seats. True, true, yeah. But finding it it, with the manual transmission, is going to be the even more yeah. of a unicorn. Oh yeah, for sure. So I'd say, yeah, maybe SLK, but the driving dynamics are fine. I, I I'd say Z4 if you're really going to start doing autocross and that kind yeah, of thing. Okay, all right. But spend ten. What if you spent yeah. ten? Yeah, yeah. And found yourself a really cherry Z4 manual, mm. heated seats. Yeah, And that would kind of be it, would it not? It
0: would get it done, for sure. I really do like that. I actually ran through his hatch list, added a couple while I was at it. I do
1: like that. Who knew? I didn't think you'd recommend a Z4. Here we are. It's a good one. It's very good. I mean, I I really enjoy getting into that Z4 every Mm -hmm. time. Yeah. I like the SLK for what it is, and it's a unicorn. and It's fun-ish. Yeah. I like that Mercedes did it, and I enjoy the heck out of the manual. But when it really does come to sports car enthusiast driving you're, you're going to have to do stuff to it to make it handle yeah. better or get a different car. <laughs>
0: <Right>? <laughs> fair point. Yeah, fair point. Sean, let's talk through your list of hot hatches here. Fiesta ST, great. You could get one. You would thoroughly enjoy it. You would, I mean, genuinely enjoy that car if that's a possibility. So yeah, can't go wrong with the Fiesta ST. Obviously, we've talked about it a lot. Granted, it is also small and it is A cheap interior, because the car was cheap originally. So what's your tolerance level for that? Fiesta STs with heated seats. I don't know how common that is. Theoretically, they're out there, (laughs) but that's a little bit of digging. The Mazda Speed 3 is genuinely fun. But a couple things to ponder. First off, you need to embrace torque steer, because it has some of the worst of any modern car we've encountered. It Mm -hmm. can be very fun, but it has very bad torque steer. And also, let's be honest, that car's old now. The yeah. newest ones you're going to find yeah. are going to be a decade old. I'm sure you could find one with heated seats, but everything about it is is going to instantly feel pretty old. I mean, you've, you're coming out of essentially a brand new car into that. You're going to feel it. And that's, that's my concern for you. You just had this brand-new Elantra, and in spite of the leaking, it was a brand-new car. The Mazda Speed 3, I think they stopped selling it in 2010 or 11 and it was already six or seven years old. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, that's my concern there. Mini Cooper, yes, definitely fun. We've had those. We liked them. You could get a Fiat 500, a BART. You haven't mentioned that. You could get it for Fiesta ST money. Do you like that more? Do you like that exhaust note more? Mm-hmm. And those did not and do not hold their value. You could probably find one that feels fairly recent with good recent tech and is still very cheap. WRX hatch, you had an Impreza. I think the hatch would work. But if you're going to look at WRX hatches, I will say this. Now you go Saab 92X because it's kind of the best of all worlds. It's one of the best generations of the WRX hatch, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. done as a Saab, so the prices are less. Now the problem there is that's now older than the Mazda Speed 3. Hmm. but it's all-wheel drive. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you have that upside. If you're going to look at the Fiesta ST, you're a guy with Ford history, two cars I have to list for you. One of them's a wild card, so it'll come up in a minute. But look at the Focus ST. We don't talk about the Focus very often, but the, the Focus is the more usable, slightly less fun brother of the Fiesta ST. The Focus can still be very fun. There's a lot of aftermarket parts. We've known people with very fast ones, so you can do what you'd like to do with it. Also, it's bigger and more usable and nicer inside than the Fiesta because it was a more expensive car originally. So Focus ST, I am going to say it. <clears throat> you need to drive the Hyundai Veloster N. Are you going to go I, there? I, I mean, I he's, know, it's not completely out. I, it's, it's good enough that it's worth you going and driving. You said you'd have to love it, and you might not. And I get it, and I understand you may want to walk away from those brands completely, and I cannot fight you on that at all. But... For your budget, you could get a slightly used one, and they are excellent. So drive a, a Hyundai Veloster, in if you can find one. And then my wild card for you is a wild card because you cannot afford it, but I think it's the perfect car for you. Mm. So I'm going to play Paul here real quick. Okay. Talk right. about a car you can't afford that I think is perfect. For you. you have a lot of Ford love and a lot of Ford history. You want a fun hot hatchback. You want a manual transmission. What you need to do is get yourself a used Focus RS. Really? The problem is really they're thirty grand. Still. They're thirty grand. I looked them up. I found lots of them at thirty grand, but they are thirty. Your budget's twenty, which is what leans us more toward the focus ST. Though the RS yeah. is really the one you want.
1: Sean, I'm looking for Z fours and I'm I'm actually liking a hard top for you, to be honest. I found oh, sure. I found a hard top for eighteen no sixteen nine. It's a okay. two thousand seven Z four three 3.0. 86,000 miles, the problem, it's a six-speed automatic. But mm. I'm looking elsewhere, and I'm, I'm wondering if the hardtop Z4
0: could be your car. That, those are fun. We really, really like them. Hey, 15, 16? Yeah, you have a good car. Our friends at Griot's Garage have got a new line of ceramic products to make your car care easier and more satisfying than ever. You can start with the new ceramic wash and coat, an ultra slick formula that can be used with either the bucket wash method, the foaming sprayer, the cannon, or whatever Paul has come up with now.
1: We take Speed Shine with us on every single shoot. It's the ultimate for quick detailing, and now it has ceramic protection too. Ceramic Speed Shine maintains a slippery gloss finish in between your main washing and protection days, and they even have ceramic trim wipes for long-lasting protection on plastic trim.
0: Try any of these products individually or use them as your new wash routine. They're 100% guaranteed, and all the liquid products from Griots are made in the USA. And don't forget to use the new code EDRIVER when you're ordering from griotsgarage.com. Our audience gets 15% off liquids and 10% off everything else. That's Griots, G-R-I-O-T-S. Enjoy the finest quality car care products you can buy at griotsgarage.com.
2: As always, you guys have bombarded us with questions. I don't even know that I'm going to find all the good ones. There are so many tonight, but I, I do want to go through a few, and I have to start here. Do you see Alex's question on Facebook where he talk about driving cars in winter without fear, but he's been researching what various states use for clearing roads.
1: I did see that. And
2: his research suggests that Utah uses different material than other states with less corrosive salts. I don't know how it could be less corrosive salts because it's out of Salt Lake, which <laughs> – is a dead body of water, so how healthy can that be? Anyway, side note, but his, his concern is that why would you drive a nice car in the winter because the stuff they put on roads destroys cars. He's not worried about the aesthetics, he's not worried about grip from tires, he's worried about a car rotting to pieces, getting essentially metal cancer, let's be honest. Yeah, That's yeah. his concern. How do we feel about driving year-round in an area that salts roads like crazy? He lives in Vermont, and he just says that pretty much everything in his area after about 10 or 15 years is ready for the, the junkyard because it's rusted so bad. How do we feel about it? I, Alec, I'm of two minds about this. Look, I, we talk a lot about cars as something that we want to keep nice and we want to drive and that kind of stuff. But then the other side of me, I realize that I'm not Paul here, but the other side of me says its the entire purpose is to be driven. And, okay, so the road and the weather and that kind of stuff beats up on it, but it's going to get beat up on it even if you're not driving it in the winter. Something's going to happen to your car. So while I don't want to be flippant about it because I don't feel that way, I also feel like we we end up getting owned by this thing that we have to keep nice. And most of us, I'm overstating here, but most of us aren't keeping a car 10 or 15 years. So I kind of feel like, even if, I mean, yeah, they put nasty stuff on the roads here in Utah and I just go, okay, you know, I, that's just kind of a pay to play thing for me. I, I'm sure you feel differently, Paul, but I kind of feel like ultimately you still should be driving your car that you enjoy even in the winter when there's muck and then do your best to clean it off.
1: I I guess I do feel differently and I know that there's many people in Michigan that put away the car. I mean, it, it's a thing in Michigan. There, there's like a a yeah, calendar for sure. Date when the car goes in the garage and you don't yeah, see it again yeah. for six months, and I know that happens. And mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm of two minds, but more towards the the preciousness and the price and how long you're keeping the car. That factors in more heavily for me because yeah, yeah. I could take the Cayman out, but Alec, if you look up magnesium chloride production. I guarantee you most, if not all of it, is made from mining the minerals out of the Great Salt Lake here in Utah. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. it's an effective de-icer. And so they're starting to use that more, not just in the winter, but also for dust control Mm -hmm. in the summer on dirt roads. And so it's almost like they use it year-round now. And the issue with magnesium chloride is that it, uh, it has to have, like, a certain humidity to be dissolved and it does in the winter. So at only like 20% humidity or so it will fully dissolve, which is Mm. most wintertime activities. Whereas salt, like rock salt doesn't dissolve until it's like 70% humidity. And that's why it just kind of brushes off in most cases. Mm. And magnesium Mm. chloride is actually worse for your car because it's, it's far more destructive to everything. And, you know, there's horror stories of people losing components as they're driving because they've rusted through so quickly. So <laughs> that's an issue. And I'm going, yeah, I mean, eh. I'm not saying it's
2: not an issue. It's I guess that it's an issue, muck. but you know, and I think, yeah, for I sure.
1: that the out in this and I'd be horrified, but you can, depending on your car, depending on your ability, you can hose it down and pressure wash the underside. Not everybody has that ability and capability to do that. But again, I come back to the, you know what, if I can use my car three months or, or nine months out of the year. So three months, four months, it's kind of put to bed. Okay. You know, and that's the fun car. And mm. I really do use it in the summer and I put away the expedition as much as possible. I don't drive. Yeah. It in the summer, yeah. You know, we, we do anyway, just because we use it for production. If I do that, then I really do feel like I'm getting maximum use out of my fun sports car. And it's, I don't know. I mean, we, we preach it. I'm so back and forth because yeah, it would be fun to throw winter tires on it and go bombing around. But yeah, then all that magnesium chloride spraying up in there. It's its the same feeling I got when I was driving the Maserati on the salt flats. I just went, the car's going away, the car's going away. You, you, the, I
2: think the only reason you actually even took that thing on the salt flats is because you knew the next thing that happened was leaving your life.
1: Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and we thought, somebody has suggested, many of you have su- suggested taking the cheap sports cars out to the salt flats, and why aren't mm-hmm. we doing that? And that's because of the next people when we raffle them off we just don't want to do that to you because we'll Well, drip salt forever
2: the other well the phaeton and the maserati are still dripping salt in their new owners for sure but the other issue with the the cheap sports cars and that is because we expect those cars to be gone by the time the salt flats gets ready to use. I mean, this is an unusable time of year. The springtime is an unusable time of year for the salt flats. It's got to be like late August, early to mid-September mm-hmm. to actually run those cars. Mm-hmm. So uh, for it to even be dry enough. And when we were out there, it was questionable. There are parts of it that were wet, which is why we get so much salt in the undercarriage and other parts of it that were very dry. So you have to, to weigh that as well. I, I love that we started on salt rusting cars and now we're on the salt flats because I'd love to take more stuff back to the salt flats, but the cleaning it is the issue, which is just un- unbelievably awful
1: cleaning and then you park it in the garage no you can't it'll just sit there and drip piles of salt
2: (laughs) (laughs) greetings greetings from utah is what i say to the owner of the phaeton every time he sends me a photo of it dripping salt in the side. i'm like yep all right he may be on the east coast but utah has come to you for
1: sure it's moist and humid and just loosens all that salt right Mm, up
2: yeah yeah oh yeah so I guess I guess your mileage will vary on that, Alec. I think I think what is your tolerance level? I guess my tolerance level is pretty high because I just feel like the car's purpose is to be fun all the time, and I hate the way that they maintain roads some ways. But
1: okay, all right. Okay, so that means we just need to lobby car manufacturers to make their cars their entire chassis out of stainless steel. That won't be expensive, or <laughs> or <laughs> heavy extrusion <Yeah. laughs> extrusions, aluminum castings, whatever you know. But, yeah. Uh, Rusty Buckskin says, when does front-wheel drive trump rear-wheel drive in terms of car dynamics? We recommended the Acura TL Type-S many times, but have not done the same thing for the Lexus IS350 in the same vintage. Wouldn't the IS350 be more playful and fun than the TL, given its rear-wheel drive setup? Yes, generally speaking. But when it does trump rear-wheel drive is when the car manufacturer makes it so and focuses specifically on making their fun front-wheel drive car really good, like a Fiesta Mm -hmm. ST, like a Hyundai Veloster N. Those Mm -hmm. are two very focused. They're not just your average Civic or whatever. It's a front-wheel drive car. They went over and above to really engineer the front geometry to be very, very good. So same with the Civic Type Yes,
2: and in the case of that IS he's talking about, the Lexus IS, that is pre-Predator Maw. Mm -hmm. And with the Predator Maw, it started to actually get some decent dynamics. Before that, the only one that was even halfway decent, because we reviewed it back then, the only reason one that was halfway decent, in spite of it being a rear-wheel drive car, was the ISF. And the best thing about the ISF of that generation was the engine. And then the, we actually had a track day with Motor Press Guild, and we drove the ISF and the M3 at the same track day. And the difference in playfulness and steering information and dynamics was profound. And that was the best of that version of the IS. Most of them were just blandsville. So the the, th- the thing about the, uh, the Acura from that era, this is the like 04 to 09 era of the Acura TL, is that it was a front-wheel drive sedan that just wanted to be driven hard and fast. Mm-hmm. And it felt like the best of the front-wheel drive dynamics from Honda from the 90s had worked its way because, of course, Acura – to the Acura TL dynamics. And it was superb. So here you have a car that theoretically, I'm, I mean, obviously it isn't, but theoretically it's wrong wheel drive, right? But at <laughs> right. the same time, the dynamics are so good. I mean, think about the Prelude from the 90s. I mean, there's a front wheel drive car that had excellent dynamics. So Honda knew what they were doing and still does. And the IS was not tuned for that crowd at all. It was just, it was rear wheel drive because that's what a luxury car is supposed to be. Right. But that IS, wasn't interesting. They've gotten better, but that one just wasn't. Ryan Reeves says, or Ryan Reeves says, uh, Track Daily Crush. This is a good one, actually. 2021 Honda Civic Type R, Limited Edition. He's saying specifically the yellow one, Limited Edition. The 2009 Honda. S2000 CR, also limited edition, that was that blue one with the bigger wing on it, or the Acura NSX, the first-gen Acura NSX, I'll go you one further, let's make it the Zanardi edition while we're talking limited edition, but either way, any Acura NSX, which of those three track daily crush? Honestly, I would daily the NSX, I would track the CR, because I think that's where it was most at home, and that means by default I'm crushing the Honda Civic Type R, which is too bad, but it'd be, yeah, that'd be my choice.
1: You know what? I think I'm with you. And that's just by virtue of the Type R being front-wheel drive. And the,
2: and the It's, which good. Is phenomenal. it's very good. Well, the
1: the Civic Type
2: R would be a really good daily because we talked about it before. It rides yeah, surprisingly would. well in spite of those wheels, and it would be a very fun track car. But the, the Honda S2000 CR is pretty much just, hi, I'm your track car. I mean, that's its purpose. Mm-hmm. So if we're doing mm-hmm. track daily crush. it has to be that. And I want a daily in NSX. I just do. That just that yeah. sounds awesome. Would you do it in the
1: magnesium chloride, the muck?
2: And yes, the... I would. Yes, I, I would. I, I would put I... winter tires on it, and I would keep driving it.
1: <laughs> the world's rustiest Zanardi edition NSX. Fine,
2: fine. It's Yikes. been used and loved. I mean, I wouldn't. I wouldn't try to make it bad. Don't I'd clean it a lot, buttholes. but no, of course not. But at the same time, okay, all right. It it has it has lived its purpose and that is be driven. Yeah. Be driven well. Look, I'll throw this it's, down. It's and I'm, so I'm, I'm throwing this down as, as a rhetorical question for all of you listening and for my dear friend, Paul, who's probably going to disagree with me. But honestly, would you rather you see a car that you know is brilliant to drive and everyone that's driven one says it's brilliant, just pick your car, whatever it is. Would you rather see one with plastic on the seats and 10 miles on the odometer or one with 100,000 miles on it and rust holes in the doors because it's been driven so well. What would you prefer to see? They're both heartbreaking in their own way, but I personally would much rather just shake the hand of a guy that drove it till it rusted out from under him than the guy that's like, I have one with plastic on the seats. That's boring.
1: All right. Well, I'll identify the manufacturers. Would you rather see a Ferrari or a Porsche? (laughs) Sure. Absolutely. I would drive a.
2: I, I. I mean, I can't afford to, but I would drive a Ferrari FF year round, especially all winter, in a heartbeat if I sure. could afford to do it.
1: I mean, I could see that. It's not. Yeah, I. I could see that. Sure.
2: But anyway, for yeah. Okay. Part. We keep. It's funny. We're we're headed into summer, and now we're talking salt. I think it's hysterical. This is a year round podcast, <laughs> folks. It's
1: all good. Matt Guerra eighty two says, "Perhaps starting a debate here, but what is our ideal baseline for power to weight ratio?" for a sports car. And he gives it in very simple math terms. Thank you, Matt, because I went to art school. 12 pounds per horsepower, he says. He did the calculation. And that's just a very simple equation of what's the weight of the car versus how much horsepower. And so I did the same thing. And I came up with my ideal uh, ratio of 7 to 9 pounds of vehicle for every horsepower. That is my That's
0: interesting. That's
2: interesting because I this is one of those bench racing features that happens
0: uh-huh. and
2: I get it. And I mean, Reddit has threads and sub threads on it and you do find it any form and they're talking about it and the equation works and we all talk about it, blah, 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 blah. I think it's, as irrelevant as zero to 60. I agree. I, I think I, I and I look and it's, it's an equation that makes sense. If you take, if you take a, like, I forget what his equation is, but, uh, Gordon Murray's new T-50 Mm -hmm. has like seven or eight pounds per horsepower. It's shockingly light. And he approached the project saying, this is the kind of number I'm looking for. And they had to build to a weight and a power to keep that number. It is, it's like six or seven. It's insane job. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. Right. So I mean, clearly, clearly that's going to be brilliant. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't think having that number at a certain place actually tells you how fun a car is to drive.
1: Oh, I agree And I will there. give you
2: two examples yeah. from my own life. One, the Elise is over 10. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
2: It's like 10 and a half. And my FRS, which I, to this day, loved driving and drove a year round, was thir- is like 13 and a half. Now, I, everybody is saying it right now, yes, but everybody talks about the fact that the FRS and the 86 is slow. true, but no one says it isn't fun. So I sure I, sure I think that I think that while that that figure it's like everything else while that figure is helpful it can't be a deciding factor. And I honestly am less concerned about that equation than I am for did I enjoy driving this?
1: Agreed. And you know, despite our upcoming performance benchmark testing for our cheap sports cars. Which really is more of a how how did you after years of you know just mm-hmm. being in existence and high mileage and all that stuff how much did they lose and did we burn them to the ground by doing this <laughs> can they survive yes. despite doing that the the numbers really do mean nothing and that is what the show was predicated on we can't stand mm-hmm. zero to sixty because it tells you nothing it's something mm-hmm. you can relate to because you're at a stoplight and or you're you know at an on ramp and you're You know, you can relate to it, but that doesn't have anything to do with how much you like the car.
2: What these numbers do, and this is the the horsepower to weight ratio or the zero to 60 ratio, is it allows you to spreadsheet a car. It allows you to compare A over B. Look, I for years, car and driver, I think they still do, car and driver had all of their performance testing in spreadsheet form in the back pages of the magazine. Mm -hmm. And I remember... Being my son's age into all my pre-driving years, I don't know what time I was driving. Frankly, probably into college, where I just I did what was the car that had the best number in that column. That must be brilliant. And yes, it can be the mean the car is great. It also can mean that something else you would have liked more that isn't that's way down the list
1: jayhawk t rev asks which manufacturer needs to fire their entire design department and why is it bmw uh,
2: that's a loaded question <laughs> i just kind of you just kind of have to read that and walk away i think we're
1: done there it's pretty good you're right but they're hanging on to the we're doing something different come follow us flag over here because you know me too on the giant grill openings you know what i'm not I'm I'm very mixed on how that design language is translating to their future electric portfolio, Jayhawk, because mm. now openings are just an outline. They're just a raised, defined outline. They're not even defined by a whole, you know, even surfaces. It's just a drawn-on graphic. Did that translate? Did Was it successful at first? Okay, can you call the M4 and M3 a success? Because, okay, it's something different. You got these, you know, huge intakes. Fine. Okay. Mm-hmm. But now, for a future portfolio, you guys are stuck, BMW. You're you're stuck with that. And you have to continue that because, let's say, they went smaller on their future electric portfolio. And every enthusiast would be like, see, see, look, it works. Come on. Well, but I
2: I still think they're going to cave on the M3, M4. I I think somewhere in the middle of this life cycle of this current car, they're going to (laughs) cave. The only reason they might not is because they have somebody in the marketing or design department who truly believes the adage that there is no such thing as bad publicity. And the fact that everybody's talking about the fact that their car is ugly is a good thing because people are paying attention. I think that is the wrong approach, but I bet you somebody in the the company is having their coffee and smiling every time somebody rages against the styling because they think it's working.
1: (laughs) And we're all just grinding our teeth over here. We are, for sure.
2: Alberti Ox says, what's the latest with the everyday driver business? Any new staffs or projects we probably can't share details on? So you're asking for the behind the scenes. You're asking for us to share stuff we can't share yet. I'll tell you a tease, and that is this. We obviously have the cheap sports cars coming to an end. That is going to end probably late summer, early fall. Before we have those cars leave our lives, we will already have the two cars for the next series. And I'm not going to tell you what those cars are, I hate but it's happening. A tease,
1: but, Oh, but yeah, there it happens. There it is. There it is. We're well, excited.
2: We're really excited.
1: Yeah. I, I will say that our patrons, our board member patrons join a monthly call and mm-hmm. we're definitely telling them and bouncing ideas off them for TV episodes and letting them know, you know, a little bit more inside. And they do also get early access to test drive videos in the videos that we drop on our YouTube channel as well. So If that is you and you would like to and are able to help out, we thank you deeply. Rocket Boy 336 says, how do you stop yourself from getting super focused and stuck on lap times? When participating in normal HPDE events, he feels unfulfilled when he doesn't get a personal best or at least sees some sort of improvement within his driving. Any thoughts would be greatly appreciated. Yeah, HPDE always turns into a race, doesn't it? It just always turns into some <laughs> sort of competition. Not,
2: it just does. Yeah, it's not supposed to, but Every, yes. Everybody
1: comes in, the you know, driver's meeting, it's like, we're not racing, we're not here to prove anything, and then what do we all promptly go out and do? Try to prove ourselves. So I, I get it. But here's the deal. It is working on corners. It is mm-hmm. trying different lines, and you could even break it down to a single corner per lap. There's a corner that, you just still haven't quite figured out, okay, consult yeah, yeah. You know, who, whoever is the, the local pro or, you you know, ride with somebody who does know how to do it really well or take them in your car if you're able and say, I'm really trying to work on this corner. What is the line? What am I doing? What is my speed for this car? The tires, the temperature, the time of day, help me work on this corner. And you're just focused on that corner for a few laps. May, maybe not the whole session, but maybe just a few Mm -hmm. laps and then move on to the next corner and you're trying things and you're just trying your own personal. Okay. Well, what if I braked later coming in and I'm, I'm positioning myself here on track. I understand that I need to be, you know, where, where the race line is, but for me and my style, my speed, you know, you're trying different things. And that's the most fun part about all these track days is you can pick corners. And the next time you come around, try something different, see if that works and you'll instantly know whether it does or doesn't. Mm -hmm. And that is in consideration. I'm just, I'm not saying just go blindly do it. Of course, get, you know, input from people who do know how to drive it, but everybody interprets that differently. So work on specific corners and then you can just be like, throw up your hands. Great. Come on by. I'm not working on this corner. Everybody come on by. Great. I'm working on whatever next corner is.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's excellent. I, I think this, this is the problem is we all want to measure ourselves against what we've done before, or what that guy did, or whatever. And the thing that I love about track days of any kind is the fact that nobody's pulling you over. There's no chance that this is going to end in an expensive ticket. Now, if it ended in an expensive, it's gone wrong. That's very possible, I will admit. Yes. And you can get Haggerty track day insurance, and I do highly advise it, because it's a great just protection in, your, in the back of your mind of just like, okay, all right, I've got, I'm defended. But the thing I like about it is the fact that you can go as fast as you want. Mm-hmm. I, I, I love that. You have zero restriction in that regard. And back to Paul's point, you can just play with stuff. I, I, it's so easy. We, we want to bury ourselves in data. We want to get personal best. And I will admit, I love it when I've got best lap times and I do better than later. And I am a geek because I don't run a lap timer on the day, but I do run in-car cameras and I look at the time code. I will admit that I do. <laughs> But I kind of like not having an in-car timer because I start to focus too much on that and I actually don't drive as well. Mm -hmm. I, I, I start to do sloppy things because maybe if I just push a little harder here versus pushing harder because I'm trying to listen to the car. The thing I love about the Lotus, it is, I mean, lots of things, but on track, it is so unbelievably talkative. And all the stuff that, it, that seems crazy about it and too raw and too much when you're driving on the street becomes this incredible like braille-like information all the time on the track. It tells you everything it's doing. And so I'm always surprised by little tiny nuances that I can change and I can feel the car do something different. And so what I try to do is I try to find cars that I either shouldn't be faster than or I definitely should be faster than And what are they doing? Why is that guy in the car that's slower than me walking away on this one corner every single time? What's happening here?
1: Because he's in a 90-horsepower Miata, but, you know, that notwithstanding.
2: But you you see what I'm saying? I like like to see what other people are doing around me and where I am gaining or losing compared to others because that starts to teach me I'm not doing something I should be doing on that corner. The last time you and I did a track day – I was in my Lotus, and there was a guy on track that was actually a very good driver. He was leading a pack of fast muscle cars, and he was in a Camaro ZL1. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I
0: remember and
2: that. during one of the sessions, because there were a couple guys in ZL1, one guy was trundling, the other guy was hooting. During one of the sessions, I just wound up near him. And after about two laps, I came up behind him on the corners. Now, of course, you give him the tiniest little whiff of a straight, and he's gone. Oh, sure. But he let, he let me by because oh, really? I was slowly, slowly gunning him down. And so he let me by. And then what I noticed is in the subsequent laps, I was faster than him on every single corner except for one. And on one of the corners, he would always come sleeping back up, just almost get to me, but then we'd hit another corner that I had dialed and I would walk away again. Mm-hmm. So then in the next session, I just went out and worked that corner. I was like, "Why can I not walk away from him in this corner?" And it was because I was actually shifting in the wrong place. And the minute I shifted differently, I got so much more speed out of that corner. Interesting. And I wouldn't have even known to look at that if I hadn't had reference points of other cars. So that's what I do.
1: Rocket boy, the the corner that you're working on. Let's see it. Let's say it's number three. You want to make sure that corners 1 and 2 are your setup corners and you're doing those properly because that will set you mm-hmm. up for a proper entry on corner number 3 and then do corner number 4 as your good out too. So it's not just one corner that you're working on. You're working on the first or second setup corners to the one you're working on and then the subsequent out corner after that. So it's, you know, you're making a nice progression through all of these. And then the other subsequent corners, you know, slow down, think about what happened and then come back to it and Get yourself set up again. It's, it's like playing a game of pool. Every shot is setting yourself up for the next shot every single time. Even if you make that one shot, you still want the ball mm-hmm. to roll to where you're set up for the next shot.
2: Well, yeah, I didn't expect this much track discussion, but this is a great jumping off point topic. The other thing that dawns on me is, you know, maybe Rocket Boy, you're good enough that you have your track dialed, that you are able to worry about tenths. But the truth is, if you give me a session, I'm going to screw up a different corner every single lap. The, the chances of me getting a perfectly put together lap are slim because while I'm now obsessing about corner four, I just screwed up three because I was thinking about four too early. And the, You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I, I think there's always just refining to do. And the other thing about it, and maybe, and this is something I have to actually proactively think about. I have to think about, am I glad to be out here? And I have to actually kind yeah. of remind myself that because I, I can, I can totally get obsessed with why am I not doing better? And then I'm not having a good time. And now I'm mad at myself. And, and then hey wait, wait, hang on, stop. I'm out here driving my fun sports car as fast as I can. <laughs> yeah. All yeah. of the other things I could be doing right now. I'm doing that. Let's celebrate that.
1: Agreed. Uh, let's see here. Oh, Baragero says the semiconductor shortage has just begun. But how will this affect vehicle sales, new and used? He's hoping to buy a new vehicle in the fall, but he's starting to sweat. Your sweats are nothing in comparison to the CEOs of the car companies being potentially faced with a semiconductor shortage. Imagine them and the ripple effect, not just of design and engineering, but manufacturing and marketing and sales promising a new model. And it just isn't available That's happening to a number of different models now. So ability to go buy is far less sweat inducing than the leadership of a car company, not being able to fulfill what they're promising and what they're trying to do with their product lineup justified. But I'd say you're in a better position than any of the leadership, you know, from a business perspective.
2: That's that's good. I think the other thing going on here, and I think we've all noticed it, look at the, what's happened to all used cars prices in the last year. Mm-hmm. They've all been pulled up because of this shortage, because of all kinds of manufacturing shortages. But the semiconductor one is, you're right, it's just now starting to really beat on cars in a bad, bad way. I, I think based on everybody, what everybody's saying or what we've seen so far, this seems pretty clear that it's going to affect models for the next year. Somewhere deeply into 2022, I think supply lines are going to be affected and certain car releases, to Paul's point, are going to be knocked back or affected. There's stories about like Ford making F-150s and leaving parts out of them to get them off the assembly line, and they will plug those parts in later. Mm-hmm. They crank out F-150s, and they're waiting on that. So this is going to be a lingering reality. However, at the same time, I do believe it will have an end. It may be six months to a year from now. I don't know any real predictions, but just based on what I'm reading and what I think seems to be happening, I think we're we're looking at the better part of next year before this really settles. I think at that point, used prices are gonna become back somewhat normal again and new cars are gonna be, it's crazy, but they're gonna be available. Alexander on Twitter says, can we compare the Mazda CX-30 and the Subaru Crosstrek? We have. We actually talked about them in our original test drive when we did not have the turbo model. Since then, we've driven the more powerful Crosstrek, and we just drove this turbo, more powerful CX-30. I will give you the headlines. I would love for you to watch those pieces because we go into more depth. But the reality is if you need real off-road capability, it's like all-wheel drive is key to you. Subaru really just does it best. Their, all, their all-wheel drive, symmetrical all-wheel drive system is phenomenal. As much as I don't like their CVT, if you're really like going down fire roads and all-wheel drive is what you care about, the Crosstrek wins. The other place the Crosstrek wins is space. The rear bench in the CX-30 is small, and the cargo space behind that is small. Both of them in the Crosstrek are superb, especially for the size of that vehicle. The Crosstrek is better for space than a lot of CUVs that are being sold, the CX-30 being one of them. So those two places the Crosstrek wins. In every other place, fun to drive factor, styling, interior materials, tech, the Mazda
1: wins. Handsome Alex twenty five says most car companies seem to redesign the product portfolio each year, doing one or two models at a time. Are the designers on contract and only employed for a couple of years, and then they leave to go other do you know other things for a decade? Nissan in particular is in a strange spot, and I've never really thought the Renault Alliance has been. Uh, a good idea i i never saw that i i've always thought it's oil and water to be honest and it's not mm, just culturally mm. i think it's just a product portfolio I, i've just never really seen it working i mean i know there's some synergies with light trucks and platform sharing and that kind of thing and you know business people can force it to work but just as yeah, a yeah. company ethos and how they're viewed by enthusiasts in the market they're just so different and they mm. also had a little Thing with their former CEO Carlos Ghosn, you know, a little yeah, seriously dust up going on with them. With he was there one him. day,
2: and next day he was gone. <laughs> Sorry, I just can't resist; it's I just, just too set easy. Set the ball on the tee. You had, had stepped back, is really uh, what you did, yeah, uh huh.
1: <laughs> yeah, so i i I look at them, you know, thinking there's just too many cooks, and because there's multiple jobs across, you know, the same jobs across these car companies, and now it's the Mitsubishi alliance too. There's mm-hmm. too many redundancies. There's too many groups of people trying to do different things and take, you know, from over here and give to over here and everybody's, I, I think their focus was all over the map as far as what should we do for the future? So should, should we serve enthusiasts? Should we serve the truck market? Should we just do bread and butter vehicles for rental car markets? You know, mm. what about electric? What about hydrogen? What are, what are we doing? What's our focus here? And there's, there were too many people and leadership wasn't good at bringing those together and i think they they were in a unique uh position a, a bad position essentially from that uh from that perspective other companies are dialed everybody's in lockstep people know what they're yeah. doing good or bad volkswagen or audi <laughs> or toyota i mean toyota's killing it over here they're just you know single minded and purposeful about everything they do Hyundai and Kia, they drop another new vehicle, whatever that is, and Mm. it's just so focused and good for that market. You're going, everybody's talking to each other, clearly, and you can tell what companies are communicating and what, what companies aren't.
2: You can also see, and this is what Nissan's doing to try to recover themselves, you can also see which companies have just opened up the checkbook and gone, who needs money to get their job done well? And Kia and Hyundai have been throwing money at the problem and, and, as a result, hiring people and paying them whatever they're worth to get to get their product up and look what's happened. Nissan, I think, in the middle of everything you're talking about, I think they, they kind of corporately hunkered down for a while and then realized everything's old. Nothing's been addressed. Yeah. You have to deal with it all. Yeah. Parker Singleton asks a question that I might get hate mail for, but he says he's thinking of restoring a 1989 BMW 325i, that's the E30 generation. So talking about the 80s cars, that's the the generation that the first BMW M3 came out of, but he's talking about the E, pardon me, he's talking about the 325i, the non-M3 version of the E30. He's thinking about restoring one and reselling it when he gets it done. Do we think it's worth the money to restore it, or what car would we resort to if we were doing a restoration build? Parker, um, okay. If you are a renter and you have the time and, more importantly, the money to restore a car, and that's your hobby and what you want to do with your time, I applaud you. Where I want to caution you is doing it for the purpose of resell. Mm -hmm. Because the people that I know of that have taken this on fall into one of two camps. They've already made a business of it, and so they can make a killing. Okay. The extreme angle would be the Jonathan Woods of the world and the singers and that kind of stuff. But the random individual guy, especially if you, this is your first time doing this, Parker, is how I read this. I suspect that the restoration is going to cost, cost you so much more in time and money than you can even possibly imagine. And what's going to happen is you're going to stress yourself out in the process going, how do I make all this money back? So what, whether you want to do the BMW or something else, I I actually just encourage you to think about it just as a project car first. And if it actually isn't a rabbit trail, and everyone I've heard of has been like, I'm going to restore this. Talk to them a month later, and they're like, yeah, I just discovered 45 other things this chassis needs. So it starts with, oh, it only needs this and this and this, and I can flip it real quick. And then I'm telling you, the person's depressed the next time you see them. Everyone I know that's done this, that's happened to them. So if you want to do it just because you'd like to learn the car and make the car better, and then when you get done, huh, I sold it, got my money back out of it, would be a huge bonus. But I think you need to treat it like a bonus and not the goal, because I'm very worried about the cost and time for you.
1: Last question to wrap up this episode comes from some runner guy on Twitter asking, in airport piano, quotes by Tim Minchin, women in Porsche SUVs always look miserable.
0: This description,
1: he says, appears reasonable in Michigan. Do we find it applicable during our commutes and travels in daily life? (laughs) Wow.
2: He's saying daily life and pointing at me since I am married to a woman that drives a Cayenne. Okay, going on.
1: In in her case, I think it's determination because she needs more power and she drives it in sport mode all the time. And she will pass you. It's only a matter of time, but she will pass you. So I I look at it as more determination. I didn't know that was happening in Michigan, but... uh, yeah, there's, there's certainly a lot of them around Park City, and uh, I don't know that they look miserable. I mean, I can't imagine why they would be. I, I
2: I haven't seen this in my own life. I'll just go very personal with it. My wife loves her Cayenne. She really does. Kate loves it. She's really, really fond of it. And look, we drive a lot of stuff. We drive a lot of very high horsepower stuff as, as well. And, you know, her Cayenne is 10 years old now, and so it is feeling its age in some ways. But on the spectrum, it just, it runs. It still feels good. It drives well. So, Uh, If she's miserable in her Cayenne, which does happen, it doesn't have anything to do
1: with the car. Thank you, guys, for all your questions, as usual. And thank you for your debates, your Topic Tuesdays, your car debates, car conclusions. Keep sending those. And a quick reminder, coming up two episodes from now is episode 600. So we will be doing a YouTube live stream in the evening. Save up all your car questions and your non-car questions for that one. Cheers, everyone.